Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You protect me from all trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and must be controlled by the bit and the bridle, for they will not come after you. Many, of the woes, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, once you've heard the story, you'll never forget the scene. Christian had never wanted so badly to get rid of the burden on his back. So Christian started to run, or did his best to with that great load on his back. At the foot of a hill, he passed an open tomb. Above it, he found himself by a cross. As the shadow of the cross fell over him, suddenly the burden dropped from his shoulders and fell right off his back. It tumbled down the hill into the tomb, and he never saw it again, ever. Christian couldn't believe it. He was just astonished that gazing at the cross had set him free. It's a beautiful description of the freedom and the joy that comes when you bring your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and are converted, when you become a Christian. All of that weight of sin and guilt that James was making us think about this morning, all of it is not only forgiven, but forgiven in such a way that the God of heaven brings you into his family as an adopted son or daughter of God. But if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that's not the end of your burdens. Bunyan's allegory is a beautiful picture of conversion. If you know the story, you know it goes on to describe so much more of the Christian life. Our eternal state is changed forever at the moment that our sin is dealt with. We are forever in the sight of God, seen through that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that. But until we get to glory, we will continue to struggle with sin. And so the question becomes, 
What do you do as a Christian with your burden, with your sin as a believer? The temptation is to stay silent. Perhaps the shame of having committed that sin is, is just too much. Perhaps there's that sense of anger with yourself that now as a Christian you would have done that against your heavenly father. Your head may be screaming, Christians just shouldn't do this. And so you stay silent. That's the heart struggle that David is addressing in this psalm. He's not specifically talking to non-Christians who have yet to have that first John Bunyan's Christian experience of coming to the cross and feeling the burden and all of the guilt of sin roll away because of that first confession of faith. He's thinking of believers like me, like you, who continue to struggle with sin. And we know that because of the experience that David brings as he writes this psalm. You look at all of the personal pronouns in this psalm. They're all describing himself. I, me, my. David is describing his own experience as a believer who is continuing to struggle, to wrestle with that burden of sin. And many people think that Psalm 32 was written just after David had written Psalm 51. If you're familiar with any of the Psalms, you probably know of Psalm 51. It's the Psalm that David wrote after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. There was a king of God's nation, of Israel, who should have been leading the people in war. He was at home while the armies were away. He cheated on an officer's wife that led to a pregnancy. So he schemed to ensure that the officer would be killed in battle. And there's David now wrestling with having committed adultery and murder. His first response was to try and hide it. And he did try. Until the Lord brought Nathan, a prophet, to come and expose his guilt. And at that point, the floor fell from under David. He suddenly saw the wretchedness of his sin and the horror of all of it. And Psalm 51, if you've never read it before, please take a Bible and read it when you get home today. Psalm 51 is David's heartfelt confession to God, realizing everything he has done. And in part of that psalm, he says to God, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And some people see Psalm 32 as part of the fulfillment of that promise that David made to God. If you look in the title to our psalm, it says, A Maskil of David. And we're not entirely sure what Maskil believes. If you look at the root word in the Hebrew, there's good reason to think it's connected to the idea of instruction. It's a psalm of instruction. You look in verse 8, that's definitely the theme for the the second half of this psalm. David longs to be able to teach, to counsel, to instruct others. So whether Bathsheba and Psalm 51 are the background for Psalm 32 or not, David wrote this psalm from his own experience of wrestling with that ongoing burden 
of sin. Not a burden that stops you from being a Christian. The burden that prevents you enjoying that communion with God. That sweet fellowship with God. So we know it's written from a believer's perspective, but we also know that David wrote it specifically to believers. Look in verse 6. He calls all the faithful to pray. He's pleading with believers. Believers like us who realize in our Christian walk that we still struggle with sin and it puts a burden upon us. So the first thing we need to see, and I've borrowed this heading straight from Dale Ralph Davis. If that name is new to you, um, Dale Ralph Davis is a, a preacher and teacher of the Old Testament in uh, the seminary that I was able to go to for a number of years. And, and there's a danger in reading Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, you either read it before you do something, and then you struggle to think of another way of preaching it, or you read it afterwards and wish that you'd read it beforehand. <laughs> so I've listened to him, learned from him, and I have a heading from him that will help you, I think. Verses 3 and 4 describe the misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. The misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. David's big problem is unconfessed sin. That's what he is wrestling with. He hasn't shared it with God for reasons of shame or guilt or whatever it may have been. But his plan A is to say nothing. But as he tells us, that unconfessed sin becomes overwhelming. Verses 3 and 4. All of this hiding just leaves him in misery. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This isn't poetic exaggeration. This isn't preacher's hyperbole. This isn't making it sound bigger than it really is because he needs somebody to know that he's had a hard day. This is every moment of my waking day, it's consuming me heaviness. This is heaviness that doesn't stop when you put your head upon the pillow. This is, this is a guilt that sits upon your heart and stops you from sleeping. And David knew that this insomnia comes from this refusal to repent. He, he even experienced physical pains and exhaustion by trying to hide his sin. Now, he is not saying that every moment of insomnia or every physical pain that you may experience has a root cause in unconfessed sin. He's not saying that. But he is saying that in this season of his life, those symptoms were a consequence of what he wouldn't bring before God. And he knows it's God's doing. Verse 4, he says, this is your hand, God's hand, heavy upon him. David's not struggling just because of his circumstances. His pain isn't just because of stress. His insomnia isn't because he's got bad sleeping habits. God is at work in his life. And when the hand of God can fix a guilty heart of unconfessed sin, it is overwhelming. Spurgeon said, 
Better a world on the shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on the heart like David. And he was right. There is nothing more overwhelming than knowing that the holy hand of God is pressing upon our heart in an area where we have refused to seek his forgiveness. It leaves us dry and, and spiritually dehydrated. David describes it as my, sen- my strength being sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, if you've experienced anything of this in your life before, you'll know that the, the instinctive response you have is to pray that God would take the experience away. There's something about us as human beings. We want to avoid that kind of pain and struggle and all of that feeling. And so perhaps the first prayer that we have is, God, just remove this because it's too much. But God loves us too much to do that. Thereof, Davis, number two, there are three. Number two, God is so good that he will not allow his people to be comfortable in sin. This is the mercy of misery. If you're experiencing something of this in your own life at the moment, please don't misunderstand what God is doing. God is at work in your heart to make sure you do not get comfortable with what has not been repented. And if you know someone who is struggling with this at the moment, David's experience should shape the way that we pray for them. Our first prayer shouldn't be, God, please stop them from feeling bad. Our first prayer should be, God, please use this just as you've used it with David to bring them to repentance and to confess their sin. There was a a professor in the seminary that I went to called Knox Chamberlain who was not in the school I was in but in another one of the faculties. And he had this reputation for praying so helpfully all the time. (laughs) But he was particularly helpful at praying for people in this kind of circumstance. This is what he would pray. Lord, deal with them as gently as possible and as severely as necessary. Lord, deal with them as gently as possible and as severely as necessary. The most important thing in our Christian life is not that we feel comfortable. It's that we don't leave any of our sin unrepented. And that's what David goes on to teach us from his own experience. God moved him from from the misery and from the, the misery of guilt to see the mercy of misery. And he brings him to repentance. And repentance that is unlimited, unrestrained, unreserved in any single way. Verses 5 and then back to verses 1 and 2 show us, secondly, the breadth of sin and the blessing of forgiveness. Now, first of all, we need to see how completely David confesses in verses 5. And then we'll come to 1 and 2. Verse 5, he doesn't doesn't rush it. He doesn't try and hide anything. He doesn't try and minimize it or downplay it. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 
If you look closely, there's three different words there for sin. The Bible has a number of different ways of describing sin. David uses three of them. And it will help you see how to confess your sin if you look at what each one is saying. First of all, the most general word is sin. And the idea is that we have missed the mark. Not that we've fallen short of it by just a smidgen, but that we are way short. If you play basketball, if you follow basketball, here's your visual cue for the sin word. Okay, This is not, you throw your shot, it runs around the ring and drops out. And this is not, you throw your shot, it hits the ring and bounces out. Sin, in this way of the Bible using it, sin is you throw your shot and it doesn't even come anywhere close to the ring. If you've been in a basketball match, it's the shot that has the opposing crowd cheering, air ball. See, you're not even near the ring. (laughs) That's what sin is. It is falling short of the holy standard of God. The second word is iniquity. And the sense is crookedness. There's a, there's a waywardness in us. We just can't walk along a straight path. Third word is transgression. And the emphasis with transgression is rebellion against authority. All of us will know in our families, in our schools, kids who have known exactly what the parent or teacher have asked them to do and have deliberately chosen to do the opposite, mostly to cause hurt. That's transgression. Not only falling short, not only having that crooked waywardness, transgression is that idea that we know exactly what the person in authority here, not a teacher or the parent, but God himself, would have us do, and we will not do it but we'll do other things that are the opposite to cause hurt. And this is what David brings before God. This is how open and complete and unreserved his confession is. He lays all of the sin, iniquity, and transgression before God because he sees it as the enormous monster that it is. One writer describes sin as the multiplex, complex, octopus-like monster that has you. We must see the treason of sin, the failure of sin, the twistedness of sin, the duplicity of sin. We're in revolt against the only true king, continually missing the mark of what he requires, having a twisted and perverse nature that covers up the cancer. That, that is sin. When you see sin's ugliness for all that it is, you're ready to come running to the grace and the forgiveness that comes from God. You look back up in verses 1 and 2. David uses all three words for sin to describe the joy that he's going to experience in his repentance. Um, Transgression, sin, and then in our English translation, It's got sin again in verse 2, but it's the same word that we've translated in verse 5 as iniquity. All of the things that he knows he's done, verse 5, he's going to find the experience of the forgiveness of God in verses 1 and 2. And look at what God does when we confess. Our transgressions, our rebellion, they are forgiven. 
The idea behind the word forgiven is lifted. The burden of the boulder that weighs upon you in your guilt for unconfessed sin, it is lifted and gone. What happens to your iniquity? That is covered. It's the language of the atonement. It's the idea that that shed blood of the sacrifice has covered all of your sin so that God's wrath is paid at that blood of the shed sacrifice. There is nothing left now for the person who's been forgiven because the just judgment's been paid and the love of God can now be given to the person who's been covered. And there's a beautiful paradox when you look at verses 1 and 5. As long as David covered his iniquity, his sin was uncovered before God. But as soon as he uncovered his sin to God in confession, God covered his iniquity. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever God covers, he will never again uncover. And our iniquity, verse 2, the Lord does not count against us. That's a word from the world of bookkeeping. Whether you keep the family budget whether you're a finance person, this is your word. It's a word that describes what you have done not being added to your ledger, to your account, to your record book. It's not there because it's elsewhere. And now you're starting to think, well, how is all of this possible? How is this lifting and this covering and this transfer? Well, you're going to have to come back this evening for Tim to open up 1 John 1 and help us see the assurance of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the teaser for our text. How does God forgive us? He lifts our burdens because Jesus bore the burden of our sin to Calvary. How is our sin covered? Because the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ covers every Christian as we repent and confess our sin to God. And how is it possible that it's not registered against our account? Well, what were we thinking in the prayer meeting on Wednesday? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're not going to confess until we see the horror of sin, but similarly, you won't think there's joy in coming to make that confession until you see how enormous and loving and complete is the forgiveness of God. So much so that David says, verses 1 and 2, that he who is forgiven is blessed. We have not seen that word in the Psalter since Psalms 1 and 2, where it described ultimately the joy of the blessed man who could only be the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the one that we are all seeking to be like in Psalms 1 and 2. But in verse uh, Psalm 32, that's not the blessing. The blessing doesn't come from being perfect. It comes from being forgiven and knowing the joy and the happiness that can be yours as you confess your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can know that indescribable blessing right now. You can know it if you have never yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ before. You can come to him just as Christian did in Bunyan's story. You can come and see by the eyes of faith, not with sight, the Lord Jesus Christ there upon the cross taking the punishment for our sin so that we might receive his righteousness. And you can say, dear God, I do not deserve your mercy. But you sent your son 
so that anyone as sinful as me can come to you and ask for your forgiveness. And he promises to forgive. If you're a Christian this morning and you know that there is unconfessed sin in your life that you have been trying to hide like David, follow David's example here. Confess it to your heavenly Father because we see what he does. He doesn't chastise us. He brings us into his grace and his mercy, promising to lift and cover and not remember our sin. And that brings us thirdly and finally to the counsel of the forgiven and the call to joy. Verses 6 to 9 contain David's instruction for his fellow believers. And he calls us in verse 6 to pray to God while he may be found. There's different ways we could take that. And certainly he's describing the reality that at the point we die, we can't then ask for God's forgiveness. There is an absolute cutoff. And we none of us know when we will die. So David is saying, cry out to the Lord while he may be found. But I think he's also saying more than that because we read all the way through the scriptures of the deceitfulness of sin. How it hardens our hearts. How you can get stuck in a rut of sin so that you become not just accepting of it, but it becomes a bit respectable. And you start thinking, actually, I can kind of live with this. Sin is so deceitful, it hardens our hearts. And as we saw in the book of Hebrews, we are to not allow that to happen. How do we do so? Well, David calls us to pray while God may be found. While our hearts, our consciences are soft to that sin and long to repent, even if we struggle for a season. And as we trust in him, we will know his perfect protection. Not that we are then immune from struggling. There is no prosperity gospel here. There is true gospel. True gospel is the presence and power of God in the midst of struggle. Not that his power will stop you from ever being in struggle. The mighty waters will still search, but they can't sink us. Trouble will still overtake us, but it can't overwhelm us. Why? Because God himself is our hiding place. And he will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, commentators aren't exactly sure who's speaking in verse 8. Is the I, David, continuing to speak and starting to say how he's going to instruct and counsel and teach people, just like he said he would in Psalm 51? Very possibly. Or is it a record of God speaking in answer to David's confession? And engaging with him in the very things that he is asking for, which is also possible. I'm not 100% sure. What I do know is that every word of God is written by him. So whether David wrote this instinctively from himself or ultimately the Lord is speaking through David to us today. These are God's words. And with another threefold description, God promises to instruct, teach, and counsel. Remember this is being written to Christians who are struggling with sin. God doesn't just knock you away. God doesn't relegate you to the conference division of, well, of disappointing Christians. 
He doesn't even just throw the rule book at you, the manual. Here you go, go and try and do better. There's some instruction in there. He gives us not just teaching instruction and counsel, but he does so lovingly. He gives us all of this so that we have it under his loving, his watchful eye. And what does David want us to know? Well, the counsel we really need to know in verse 9 is, Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Now, of course, we can apply that generally to the whole of our Christian life. But in the context of this psalm, a psalm where David has been through a season of stubbornly refusing to bring his sin to God, and then wonderfully being brought to bring that sin to God and experiencing all of the joy that comes in knowing that he's forgiven, I think he's specifically saying... Don't be stubborn in the way that you hold on to your sin. Don't be like a horse or a mule that you have to force around as as God had to with David here to bring him to that point of realizing that he was bowed down with all of this guilt and needed to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his forgiveness. That is what David has learned. That is what he's pleading with us to learn. We need to be spiritually sensitive to God being at work in our lives. So don't do what I'm prone to do and shove your head in the sand. Don't think, this is such a mess, I don't even know where to begin to start. I'm not going to pray about it. Don't be silent when you need to confess. Don't downplay when there's something enormous to say. Instead, Grab hold of the mercy and the forgiveness of God that David's experienced. Come back to God and love that union and communion and enjoy the sweetness of that fellowship. And to encourage us in doing that, David closes with this promise of joy. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Don't miss the contrast. If you're struggling with sin and you've read Psalm 32 and you've looked at what's going on in verses 3 and 4 and said, I'm not going to tell anybody else this, but that's exactly where I am. And then you read verse 5 and you think, well, I'm not sure I can be that honest. If you're in that zone right now, you might misread verse 10 and think the contrasts between the wicked and the perfect. It's not. Look at verse 10. The contrast is between the wicked and the forgiven, those who trust in the Lord. And for all who do that, God promises to surround us with his covenant love, his chesed love, his love that isn't based on our unfaithfulness as we keep on sinning. It's based on his character, his covenant-keeping character that never, ever changes And knowing that, verse 11, David calls us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Christian, God is for you. He is patient in your confession. He forgives and covers up and doesn't count your sin And he longs for you to know the joy of your salvation. Has that joy gripped your heart? I was listening to Radio 3 this week. Uh, Yeah, I'm that old. 
and, um, and uh, Franz Josef Haydn was about to be played. And the person who was introducing the piece was talking about the fact that Haydn often got a bit of a bad reputation because he was way too excited when it came to his musical composition. And uh, it reminded me of a time when Haydn was putting John the Baptist's words at the beginning of John's Gospel to music. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in one sense, that the lyrics, that the statement that he was putting to music are very somber and serious. But Haydn put the music with so much joy and delight that by the time he'd finished not only composing it but then performing it, he felt like he needed to apologize to Empress Maria Theresa, who was the person who paid for it all. But the way he apologized was amazing. Haydn said that the certainty of God's grace had seized him with an uncontrollable gladness. That's what Psalm 32 is here for you to know. If you've been stuck in verses 3 and 4, you would see how to confess again in verse 5. And the joy and the blessing of verses 1 and 2 all the way down to 11 would be yours afresh today. Deraf Davis, number three. How do you summarize Psalm 32 in a question and an answer? How do you spell relief? In God's dictionary, it begins with an F. Forgiveness. We often rush into the closing hymn I need to take a moment. And I know some of you won't be praying for yourself or for others, so why don't we just take a a few minutes to pray. If the musicians want to come up, that would be great. And then so that you can pray for a moment too. Let's pause. And for those who know that there is such a sin that needs to be confessed, have Psalm 32 verse 5 in front of you and confess it. Others of you know people for whom this is a consuming struggle at the moment. Why not pray Knox Chamblin's prayer? Lord, deal with them as gently as possible, but as severely as necessary. Others need to pray with thanksgiving, knowing in your own experience the forgiveness of God and the joy that it brings. And all of us, Knowing that can ask the Holy Spirit to give us joy in our faith. That we wouldn't be dour Christians. That we wouldn't be constantly mournful and sorrowful. But that we would see that our hope is in a risen Savior who has given us a finished salvation. Let's have a few minutes to pray before we sing. God in heaven, nowhere else in our lives will we see the need to confess. No other club, society, school, anywhere is going to call us to see how serious our sin is. Thank you for the gift of your word and for the privilege of being in a church family such that we hear of how serious sin is, how important it is that we walk our Christian life 
in the joy that comes from knowing the forgiveness of our sin and that sweet fellowship with you. And Father, we long for that. We long for it in our lives. We long that you would please be at work in your spirit, not to allow us to become comfortable in our sin, but that you would please work in us as gently as possible, but as severely as necessary to make us forgiven people who live every day repenting of anything that becomes a barrier in our relationship with you and knows the joy of the forgiveness of our sin. So, Father, now as we come to sing, we pray that you would give us hearts of thankfulness, that don't ignore the significance of sin, but know that it has been fully dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we may sing. We may sing, praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.